Hello and welcome to another episode of Professors at Work from the American University of Beirut. I'm Rami Khoury, your host. Every week I talk to a research scholar or a faculty member or some kind of researcher linked to AUB doing a work on something new in our world that they are discovering. And this podcast aims to bring you the fruit of that research and to share it with the world. I'm very happy to have as my guest today, uh, Dr. Lana Salman, who recently received her uh, doctorate uh, from Berkeley in California. She is a double graduate of AUB, an undergraduate, and also a master's uh, in city and regional planning, and now is a postdoctoral research fellow uh, at the Harvard Kennedy School from where I interview her. Lana, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Rami. Happy to be with you. It's great to uh, follow your career. I've known you since you were an undergraduate at AUB many years ago, and um, this is one of the great AUB stories of people who go on and achieve great academic feats and research and, um, and, and, and make the world a better place. So in your case, you're doing work that uh, originally started with urban planning and city planning and economics, and then uh, got you into uh, work in Tunisia during the democratization period that lasted a few years. So bring us up to date. What are you working on these days? I know you're doing a book, I think. Uh, tell us what you're doing and then we will discuss it. Yeah, um, I am actually working on a book manuscript that's based on my dissertation research. As you mentioned, so I was in Tunisia. I first actually landed in Tunisia in November 2011, right after, uh, like, like, it had not been a year since the revolution. And I landed as part of a team of experts from the World Bank. I was uh, then a World Bank employee, and we landed in Tunisia straight to the Ministry of Interior then, which was under um, Nahda, which, as you know, were persecuted uh, under the authoritarian regime. And our uh, objective as the World Bank team was to bring, help the country, uh, shepherd the country through these um, this difficult period of democratic reforms. And the World Bank team was then working on a project on decentralization. And I was part of that team. And after I left the World Bank to start my um, graduate studies, postgraduate studies in at UC Berkeley in city planning, I actually wanted to think more about Tunisia and that experience, both of development and democracy and the role of international financial institutions in it. Uh, in Tunisia, precisely, uh, precisely at that moment. With a, I think you also had a particular interest in local government issues, local citizen yes. government relations. Yes, exactly. So um, my motivation to look basically at the Arab Spring is because, or the, no, I, I don't actually, I don't, like at all to call the Arab Spring, the Arab Revolutions, because mm -hmm. that seems like a catch, like the Western India catchphrase. So the yeah. Arab Revolutions, um, you know, that I mean that particular moment of the Arab Revolutions, 2011, etc. I was in Lebanon and I was watching these, uh, I was working at the Isam Fadis Institute then, we were working together actually. Right. And that moment was really formative in my coming of age politically, because I was, I had been used to politics, to Lebanese politics all my life and politics was about uh, you know, corruption and and violence and and um, an usurped or a sabotage sabotage state. And then mm -hmm. I saw something different. 
a politics that is otherwise and a politics that is proximate, you know, where the state is something close to you, not a very abstract entity, the, an amorphous monster kind of that you cannot really have a grip over or get a sense of. And these revolutions totally changed, at least their mediatized version, totally changed the way I think about politics, the way I think about institutions, and the way I think about this thing called the state. And so Tunisia was the perfect place for me to, to start learning about these things. And truly, Tunisia taught me a lot. And I think I changed as a person politically and intellectually as a researcher and as an Arab citizen um, because of my experience, fieldwork and research in Tunisia. Well, of course, Tunisia uh, was a dramatic example of the, the the will of Arab citizens and their ability to transform into a democratic constitutional system and then to have it uh, pushed back by the autocratic forces that still lurked within the within the system. So th there has been uh, good news and, and bad news. But let's go back to your the, the good news period when you were doing your research yeah. and the democratic process was in motion. What was the focus of your research and, and what, was the, what were the main lessons that you learned? Yeah, so I will go back to this bad news, good news thing, because it, I think it's also, as you know, a media, immediatized way of talking about Tunisia. But let me tell you first about where I did research. Mm -hmm. So I started doing research in municipalities because there was this huge World Bank funded program um, that is still, is still ongoing, actually. And by the time it, it ends, it will be about half a billion dollars of World Bank, World Bank funding for decentralization reforms in Tunisia that goes in line with the constitutional, with the new 2014 constitution that says that local governance is based on participation and uh, decentral and decentralization, basically, that puts, that brings the state closer to people and makes them effective um, decision makers in their local affairs. So what I did is over a period of um, a year and a half, I was in Tunisia for almost 19 months, um, I observed participatory planning meetings or I observed these investment, they call them in Tunisia uh, uh, so the, the meetings for um, participatory democracy and they're actually investment planning meetings where the municipality invites citizens to come and um, prioritize investments in their um, neighborhoods and these are uh, in uh, basic uh, services, right? So paved streets, uh, public lighting, uh, trash collection, uh, sidewalks, uh, some projects around public gardens, some projects that don't always get funding that have to do with um, sports facilities, like maybe a pool or a, ba or, or a basket court or a playground for kids. And so yeah. I spent a year and a half observing 76 of these meetings. I went to 76 of them, some of them repetitive meetings in the same municipalities. Mm -hmm. um, over two years, so two cycles. So I observed this. I, this is an exercise that happens every year between um, between uh, uh, October and December. But also, let me, let me interrupt. The, the citizens had never done this before, right? This is new yeah. to them. Yeah, so, okay, so new and not new. In this form, it was very new. 
in the sense that this is an institutionalized exercise where people tell them, if you don't show up, we don't get money because they're showing up to the municipality is the condition for uh, then the central government to give the municipality money as part of their, what we call intergovernmental fiscal transfers. So mm -hmm. in that sense, the work of the municipality, its ability to have resources depended on having these people participate. But it was not new in the sense, and this is about the old news, new news, um, old news, bad, bad news, good news that you started with, right. is that it is not true that in pre-revolution Tunisia under Ben Ali, there was no participation at all. In the sense that, of course, the authoritarian regime function was it restricted restricted participation to particular spaces and only to people who were allied with that regime. And they did it in a way that was very um like ghettoized, you know, for for specific groups, for specific things. So what's different in this period is the absolute really democratization of the exercise, the ungettoing and unghettoization, like the the basically exploding this this exercise and putting it um generalizing it across across the territory. So in that sense it is very new. Right. And then so what what you did your research for 19 months and yeah. Uh, and uh, what were the your main conclusions and, and that you're now working on to, to put into your book? In other words, what do you think are the main lessons that others can learn from Tunisia's experience? Yeah, so um, my book, my the current title, the working title for my book manuscript is Sidewalk Democracy, uh, mm -hmm. Governing Popular Urbanism in Tunisia. And the argument I am making is that um, looking at democracy only as, or looking at democratizing politics only at the national level and only as elect, uh, institutional, as an institutional exercise or an electoral exercise is not enough. And instead, we should look uh, for, uh, you should look at space and cities uh, for a better understanding of what democracy outside institutional settings looks like. And in this case, it looks like it, it's different forms of claims making that change across, uh, that change in Tunisia over time. And so this work, although I did research, of course, on the present moment, I did ethnographic work. So in addition to my work in municipalities, I traced back basically where these demands come from. And I did research in popular neighborhoods and I worked a lot with uh, women, yes. uh, women in popular neighborhoods. And I, I looked a lot at their effort, their social reproductive labor, what we call social reproductive labor, which mm -hmm. means their efforts, uh, their everyday efforts at building a home, feeding children, schooling them, uh, taking care of sick people, of elderly people in their communities, and how that becomes a basis for making for make, for becoming political subjects and be, and making claims on the state and this is the form that claims making takes in the late neoliberal period which is the period we are at now but if right. you historicize this over uh, over uh, since the colonial since colonial rule in tunisia which i do because i did quite a bit of archival work we yeah. see that that pattern of claims making the register change the registers change and the institutional mediation for this type of claims making changes. So in doing this work, I actually try to debunk two, uh, at least two important, um, I think, um, tropes that govern research about the region. The first is um, 
uh, people of the region are in inherently undemocratic, right? Yeah. I don't know if you read about this. I mean, they, they, these things infuriated me after the uh, coup, after what people called the coup in July 20. I don't agree it's a coup, actually. And I don't have, I don't have analysis about what Khais Saeed did. That's not oh. my area. But after July 25, after the changes, basically, Western um, journalists started, talk started, started having, writing these articles that maybe Tunisians never wanted democracy. Right. And there is this trope, Rami, in the region that people of the region, the you know the backward Muslim Arabs, whatever that trope, are, yeah. are inherently undemocratic and inherently not open to democratic governance, which is absolutely untrue. And right. this is something we have to debunk as scholars very carefully, because if you look again at the history of this country, even under colonial rule, Tunisians were exercising this type of sidewalk democratization, as I call, call it, because you see petitions to colonial authorities, to waqf associations, to the municipality of Tunis for the right to housing, the right to services, the, the right for property, the right to property. Yes. So that is not true. And the, these claims continue even under the authoritarian regime in different forms. That's why I say the mediation and the mediating, the, 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 uh, the configurations of mediation for these claims changes over time. But it's not true that it ever disappears. So it's not true that Tunisians or any of the Arab world citizens are inherently undemocratic. Right. This is, this is the first trope. Um, and the second trope, and this is more generalizable, it's not only about Tunisia, it's more common in social sciences, and it has to do with the way, I think, where social scientists are positioned, and sometimes their moral high ground, not always, of course. But this idea that the poor and people who are trespassers, right, illegal builders, popular neighborhoods, all these things, want to hide from the state, right? They want to be under the radar, and they just want to be... They just want to do their thing and they don't want to interact and they want to do and they just want to continue living and doing their own thing and don't want interactions um, with state authorities or with power. And that is also not true because throughout history, we see that uh, poor, poor Tunisians, people um, accused of being trespassers uh, in the city always have have always engaged with the state to obtain to, uh, to fight for the right to be in the city, for their right of access to housing, but also to a dignified life from the beginning. And it is actually throughout time that different regimes, including the colonial regime, wanted to modernize or civilize the citizens, a discourse that, that continued post-independence uh, post, um, uh, post in Tunisia and took on different forms in post-revolution about, you know, bringing, making these people transition to uh, a more civilized, uh, to, more, to, to a more civilized, like, urban setting, or, yeah. um, so these, both of these tropes, I think, are, are, are very prevalent tropes, mm -hmm. um, and one should, and I am working uh, in this manuscript to debunk both of them. Wow, good for you. Well, this is really fascinating because um, it's obvious, and you confirmed it with your research. I mean, it's obvious to those of us, say, who live and work in the Middle East, who know these societies, that the, the, the probably the single biggest source of irritation for citizens is their mistreatment by uh, powerful forces in their, 
immediate vicinity in their neighborhoods and their cities, whether it's government officials, uh, wealthy people, uh, foreign companies, whatever it may be. Uh, it could be tribal groups or religious groups or ethnic groups, but people are really angry because they just can't get on with their daily life and therefore uh, they keep asking for things as you've documented and they've gotten nowhere over the years or, got, or very little uh, and therefore the region exploded 10 years ago and, and there continues to be wide-scale uh, protest uh, and uprisings. Um, but your focus on the local level strikes me as really important uh, because that's where the citizen and the state meet on a daily basis. Correct. And um, so from, from we've only got about four or five minutes left. Um, what, your final conclusion uh, then is, uh, are you making like policy recommendations? Are you suggesting how Arab states or other states can build on these realities that you've documented? Yeah, I always hesitate a lot with this because I I also come from, yeah, as you know I come I come from practice I was a development practitioner for a while working for the bank, and then somehow when I come to to policy recommendations at my end of research and I think this is something I struggle with in my career it, it's like I I then and I then feel that I'm much better at asking questions and yeah. analyzing, you know, and analyzing the world than actually prescribing um, solutions. So actually, yeah. I think, I think part, part, parts of the parts of the solution, I know, uh, I know for like, in, in a general sense is about building better institutions, right? And in a sense, and in this case, particularly housing institutions and local governance institutions. And in a sense, this is not only just a policy recommendation. In a sense, this is what all the claims making in these municipalities, the proximate state, the state that is closest to citizens. This is what citizens are trying to do in these spaces, Tunisian citizens. They are yeah. trying to craft better institutions. And this is not only institutions that resemble them, you know, institutions with politicians and officials that aren't detached from their everyday lives, that, yeah. li you know, that live particular ostentatious lives sometimes that are also very mediatized. Well, people can't get, you know, while you hear, while you hear women in these meetings saying, if my child gets sick and I need to go out and get them medication from the pharmacy, I sink in mud because I have no pavement and no streets and I can't, you know, get, get medication for my child. They actually want to build institutions. Uh, and building institutions starts from these very small, intimate uh, life situations, building institutions yeah. that resemble them, that are responsive to, th to them. And this is not only Tunisians. In Lebanon, in the October revolution, our revolution, we did the same. We went down to the streets to demand institutions that look like us, not like the class that governs us now. So in right. the sense, building institutions, I think, remains my biggest uh, policy recommendation, including institutions of local governance that are very strong and able to have and, and, and who have the financial um, and administrative and political independence to make decisions. Because, you know, the, the costs also of experimenting at the local level are much lower than the cost of experimenting nationally because you have many cases right many small municipalities in the country and you can roll out different programs and test them and so in a sense it's a great experimentation ground for yeah. testing what works and what doesn't and for scaling down projects that seem mammoth and require lots of resources so experimenting yeah. at the local level and building these strong institutions 
is an excellent way to start tackling the hardest and most challenging problems, urban yeah. and otherwise, I think, in our countries. Especially if the local citizens are involved in this process and not just yes. dictating. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Lana, we've, we're just about run out of time. What's your next uh, project? I am moving next to Europe, uh, which is going to be the first time for me. Um, and I'm going to be, um, I'm going to continue working on these projects uh, as part as a uh, Marie Curie postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Conflict and Development Studies at Ghent University. Wow. And next, I think I will return to Lebanon as a, as a terrain of research and for asking questions, but I will do it this time comparatively. And I'm thinking of a next project that looks at housing in Lebanon and Tunisia comparatively, especially uh, that many of my Tunisian friends, whenever they hear about Lebanon and they love Lebanon, tell me they're on the same path. And I'm very intrigued by this idea of following a path of crisis and looking at it unfold. So my wow. next project is a comparative Tunisia-Lebanon project focused on urban and housing policies. Well, it'll be great to have you back in, uh, in Lebanon and you're a credit to uh, AUB and yourself and all the good work that uh, you've done uh, and continue to do. And uh, we've unfortunately run out of time. Uh, so, Lana Salman, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Rami. It was great talking to you. You bet. Uh, Lana uh, is now a postdoctoral research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, she's a double graduate from uh, AUB and uh, she has been working uh, all around the world, uh, including mostly in Tunisia recently. That's our uh, episode for this week of Professors at Work. I'm Rami Khoury, your host. Thank you for being with us, and I hope you'll join me again next week. Bye for now. <laughs>